How will I face this mountain ahead of me? Will I spend time studying how big the mountain is? Or will I trust that my God is bigger? Will I fear what lies in wait on the other side of the mountain? Or will I trust that my God goes ahead of me? Will I lose focus on where I am headed? Or will I trust my God to guide my steps? How will I face this mountain? We're going to continue in a little series that we've been in called Facing Incredible Odds, and we're going to be looking at uh, some more characters today that were doing just that. The, the odds were tremendous against them, and maybe learn some truths and principles. We're in the book of Daniel, chapter 3. Uh, got Bibles available if you uh, would like one. Uh, you'll see the ushers walking down the aisle. We, uh, we're excited about uh, what God's teaching us through this time, but before I go too, too much farther, I just want to say thanks to our student ministry. Didn't they do a great job last week? They were awesome. I was so proud of him. We celebrated uh, Blaine's 20th anniversary and, uh, and just the fruit of his ministry over those years was so evident. And thank you for your support and encouragement uh, for a lot of the young people. I have to share a quick testimony, okay? Uh, just a little backdrop. I, my, uh, when my, I went through this whole uh, season with my brother's passing, you know, a few months ago. I kind of got closer to my, the next brother. Uh, his name's David. Uh, he's a truck driver, and, and it just seems like we drew a lot closer as, as we were walking through this with our brother Doug. And uh, back when I was doing the memorial, I told David that, uh, that I'd planned to go up to Alaska for a couple of days to, to, to a friend's, and, and I was going to probably do some fishing. And my brother just says, he goes, man, that's always been my dream, to go to Alaska. He says, it's kind of on my bucket list. And, and so I, uh, I kind of paused, and I said, well, David, you want go to go to Alaska with me? And he said, wow, you know, man, that'd be, that'd be unbelievable. And so uh, we made plans to, to take him up there. And so I was up there a few days back, and we just, we had the time of our life. We really did. I, maybe some of you saw a picture that I put out there uh, of a fish, but this is my brother uh, right when we had caught uh, a little halibut. And uh, my friend Russ, uh, this next, next picture, uh, I, I did catch a fish. 110-pound 100, 100, uh, halibut, uh, that's the one on the left. I don't know how big the one on the right was, but uh, yeah. Uh, this, I don't know if they got this other one, but Saturday morning, Russ and I were just out on our own. This is what it looked like, just, just on the water. It was like glass, and just a few minutes, uh, actually, I think it was right about then, we caught, caught another 50-pound halibut. So it was a very successful fishing trip. But I got to tell you, when I got back, my brother came home, and he didn't leave until Monday. He came to the service last week, last Sunday. Not, he doesn't go to church. And this is what I've been praying for and asking many of you to pray for. He came to the 11 o'clock service, and he was just so attuned to, to what God was speaking through the, the student ministry, the message about Zacchaeus. And after the service, on his own, he came up and he talked to Blaine. And he, he said, Blaine, he said, you know, if I lived around here, I think you would convert me. And then he added this, I don't think my brother Kenny could convert me, but I think you could. 
And I, I just say that because, you know what? God loves him, and, and I think God may be stirring in his heart, and I'm just praying that the seeds that might have been planted uh, by just being in this fellowship and seeing the love of Christ here, uh, maybe that there'll be some fruit in, a, in the near future. And uh, appreciate your prayers al- along those lines. Uh, I want to also mention, on Wednesday night, we're going to gather here in the auditorium for prayer. Uh, we kind of postponed this, and here's the reason what was behind this. Um, we know that our leaders have been really considering, you know, what God's doing here and, and looking kind of ahead to the future. And there are a number of things that we just want to collectively come together as a church and lift up before the Lord. Uh, I wanted to mention some of those or share some of those this weekend, but it was real important that all the leaders that were involved would be part or be here this weekend. Unfortunately, some of them couldn't be. And so what I want to do is on Wednesday night, share some things about what God's doing uh, now, but also as we're looking ahead and then come together and seek the Lord. Uh, we're going to meet in here at 7 o'clock. Uh, we'll go for an hour, hour and a half, whatever. Uh, I remember last time, a few months ago when we did this, we set up for 100 people and 200 people showed up. Uh, and I was so proud, you know, because this is a priority. We learned this a few weeks ago in this very series from Asa. Do you remember that message? How Asa, when he was faced incredible odds, he went before the Lord in prayer. He sought the Lord. In fact, they made a covenant to seek the Lord in prayer. And that's what we want to do, uh, you know. There, there are amazing opportunities. One of the things we want to do Wednesday is to celebrate some of the amazing things God's already doing and has done over the past weeks and to praise Him. We don't celebrate very good. Uh, we always kind of have our sights ahead. We want to praise the Lord, but we also uh, want to bring us together and, um, and just, just kind of know what, uh, what God's saying to us at this time. So I hope you'll join us on Wednesday at 7 o'clock for that purpose. We, uh, we today are going to go back and we're going to visit... Uh, Probably a familiar story to to many of us, but the theme today is the idea of conviction, of becoming a person of conviction. If you have your notes handy, I kind of put a working definition of what, what we're talking about today. And essentially it goes like this, that a conviction is a truth that you believe in so much that it shapes your life. A truth you believe in so much that it shapes your life. That could be any number of things. There, could be, there are thousands of possibilities out there. You know, you, you may have a, you know, a belief that uh, you get what you pay for. You ever heard that, that before? You get what you pay for. And if you hold that conviction tightly, then that's going to probably shape the way you buy things. If you've got a choice between quality over here and, and the cheapest thing over here, you, you're going to probably make a decision. And... and as a result of that conviction, you're going to make a decision for the quality because you know that ultimately it's going to, going to last longer. You might have a, a belief that uh, there's no substitute for hard work, and you're convicted about that. Maybe it was passed down to you by your father or, or by parents or something, but somehow that became deeply rooted in you. How would that shape you? Well, probably would shape you in, in uh, whether you're not you're going to play the lottery, okay? Or you're going to spend time at the casino down the road. Because you just know deep in your heart that God honors you know, hard work. Um, if it's biblical, maybe you, you have a conviction that, that the Holy Spirit lives within us and our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you hold that tightly and deeply, that's a truth you hold and it's going to shape you. It's going to probably inform how you 
uh, take care of yourself and, and how, what you eat and things like that. That's what we're talking about. And there's thousands of possibilities here. But the bottom line is, where do they come from? And, and how tightly do you hold to those? The story that we're looking at today, I want to take you back in history, okay? Roughly around the year 600, 605 B.C., all right? Israel has disobeyed the Lord. They were warned over and over and over again that if they continued down this path, that their enemy would be allowed to overtake them. And not just to defeat them once, but to literally haul them off to a foreign land. We call it exile. And several of the prophets, like, like Jeremiah and, and uh, uh, some of the other minor prophets, they all continually told them, if you don't change your ways, this is what's going to happen, and ultimately that's what happened. And so the Hebrews, were, many of them were taken to this area of Babylon. It's in modern-day Iraq. It's a section today that is between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, and the story we're looking at today happens in what they call the Plain of Dura, okay? The king is Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar now, he has all of these Jews that are a part of their society, and what he's trying to do, and I don't know if this is a word or not, but Babylonize them, okay? He's trying to mold them into their culture and to get them to abandon their beliefs, their religion, their truths, their, their convictions, okay? You get in the picture? And that's where steps in these three brave uh, Hebrew young men, you know them by the name, the Babylonian name. Earlier they're called something else. They were, their names were different, but now they've been changed to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All right? So that's where we're picking up our story. And what I want to do is I want to quickly walk you through uh, the account in Daniel chapter 3. And I want to start with a project that King Nebuchadnezzar is uh, initiating. Uh, Verse 1, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar was making an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. That's about 90 feet. Okay, can you get that picture? 90 feet tall, and its breadth was 6 cubits, about 9 feet wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Okay? Nebuchadnezzar was essentially trying to draw all the worship to himself. And so he makes this huge statue. And I just have to say, guys, would you agree, he had some issues going on here, right? Uh, you know, somebody that has to make a statue of, of that way, uh, there's something going on there. By the way, I don't know if I ever shared this with you, but one time in my office in previous ministry, I go to my office and on the outside of my door is this package about three, four foot high and about two, two feet wide. And it's all wrapped up. And I, I what's this, you know, it had my name on it. Well, I, I take it in and I begin to open it up. And it was a portrait of me. And some gal uh, who apparently saw herself as an artist took a picture uh, and she painted a, a portrait of me. And my first thought is, what in the world am I supposed to do with this? You know, I don't want to hurt her feelings or anything like that, but, but what are you going to do with a portrait of yourself? Now, if it was Nebuchadnezzar, he'd probably have it out in the middle of the hallway, right? And then you walked in, you know, you, you know, all that. 
No, I threatened to the staff if they, you know, if they did something kind of bonehead or whatever that they'd have to have it in their office for the time until it got to. But uh, I thought about that. I thought a guy that has to build a statue of himself and then he, he makes this uh, decree, okay? He makes a proclamation and it says, the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, and the bagpipe, I didn't know there were bagpipes back then, but he says, when you hear these instruments and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And so this decree goes out, this is what's demanded of the people, and if you don't do it, the penalty was very clear. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. That's the penalty. You know, as I was writing this this week, I wonder, I wonder if there are some folks who really don't know the Lord, but yet their view of God may be like that of Nebuchadnezzar. I wonder if there's some folks who actually believe that God is one who demands worship, and if you don't worship him, he'll cast you into a fiery furnace. Think about that a moment. What's the difference? And as I thought about this, I thought the difference is in the word jealousy. There's a big difference between being jealous of something and being jealous for something. Our God is jealous for you. He wants relationship with you. He loves you so, so much. As we were able to worship today and, and just be reminded of the, the overwhelming love of God that he has for us. You know, and the consequence of not entering into that is separation. When we think of a fiery furnace, friends, that's all due to the separation that some of us experience because we don't enter into relationship with God but it's nothing like the jealousy that Nebuchadnezzar had uh, of any other rivals or whatever, and he wanted it all for himself. And I hope we don't have a mistaken view of God in this way. But Nebuchadnezzar, he determines this penalty, and so now enters onto the scene our, uh, our three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, okay? They, uh, they are, I'm, I'm calling them men of conviction. And the threat comes to them, and if you're, uh, if, again, you're looking and picking up, look at verse 13. Nebuchadnezzar was in furious rage. He commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And so the, these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and he said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you're ready when you hear the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon and the harp and baptism and every kind of music, fall down, worship the image that I've made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Okay? Basically he's saying, you know, you don't know who you're talking to here. I've got the power over you. And if you don't do this, this is going to be the result. That was the threat. And so that's the backdrop here. And I want us to take a moment and just consider their response because friends, this is what a person of conviction looks like. I hope all of us can see ourselves in, in this kind of character. 
in this kind of a moment, this is the defining moment, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? Now, I doubt whether any of us here this morning have ever found ourselves in an exact situation like that, but I'll tell you what, there are moments when your deep convictions that are held, you'll, you'll speak boldly about them and openly about them, but when they're tested, when they are tried, what are you going to do? I think there's three things that I pick up from this story that in their response. I'm going to give those to you. The first one is that I learned about a person of conviction that they don't play the role of defense. They don't defend themselves, but they are standing firm more in, in what we would call in, in maybe team sport in the offensive mode. In one version, they literally tell King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves. In the ESV, it, it, they basically say, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. And as that unfolds, uh, it's pretty clear, you know, they're not going to back up. What matters to them is what God has said. They knew the scriptures, they knew the commandments. They had been given these, uh, grown up probably with the Ten Commandments. They knew that the Second Commandment said, you shall not make an idol or bow down and worship anything other than the one true God. That's why they're in the mess in the first place, right? Is because they refused to do that. And so now it comes down to it, okay, do I really believe that? I mean, do I believe it to the extent that the, this threat is coming at me? Friends, here's what often happens. We get into those moments and we go in through this little dialogue in our mind and says, well, I could just go through the motions, right? It's not gonna hurt anybody. I'll just go through the motions. And then sometimes you hear the little whisper, whisper in your ear and you say, I'll just go through that and go, go ahead with that. After all, God is a God of forgiveness, right? And I, I would have to say, this is not so much an issue of whether God forgives or not, it's a matter of whether we will forsake our God. That's what their, their real issue is. And as it unfolds, and as they look at this, they, they just simply say, we're, we're not gonna defend ourselves in this matter. We don't have to defend ourselves in that. I, uh, I stop and I think, you know, about Jesus when he was standing before Pilate. And the picture, the picture that the writer, particularly Matthew, gives us is that Pilate, much like Nebuchadnezzar, is saying, don't you know that I've got your life right here in my hands? In that private conversation, remember, before he went to the cross? And he says, don't you know that I've got it right here, uh, you know, one way or the other? And Jesus, up to that point, hadn't said a whole lot, and even then he said, you don't have anything that my father has not given you. And then he began peppering him with, with questions. And Matthew records that Jesus didn't answer them to the great amazement of the governor. He was quiet. Prophetically, we know he was like a lamb being led to the slaughter, who is quiet, doesn't fight, doesn't defend themselves. But when you see our Lord Jesus in that posture, this is what I kind of picture with these guys, is that they, they don't need to defend themselves because they're so confirmed in their conviction that they hold to the one true God. They don't play defense. Jesus earlier said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a position of offense, isn't it? 
He's saying, we're the ones that are going to take the territory. We're the ones that are going to move forward, and, and they're the ones that are going to react. We're the actors. They're the, they're the reactors. I think I put a quote uh, there in your note that circumstances didn't alter their convictions. Their convictions were altered by their circumstances. And so the challenge here, uh, J.B. Phillips' version of Romans, he says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. That's not who we are. They're taking a stand for Christ, uh, essentially, as we're going to learn even a little bit later. But, but they stand upon their principle and their convictions that, uh, that they don't need to defend themselves. Here's the second thing that I observed. I think a person of conviction always confesses to the ability of God. They're going to proclaim that God is able in God's ability. Listen, he says, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. They always are going to lift up um, the power of God and to recount the power of God. We talked about this recently, about just going back and thinking of the moments where God has intercepted your, your journey and proven himself to be faithful. He worked in a way that just was nothing short of amazing. And it doesn't take too many of those times, does it, to reaffirm that if he did it once, he will do it again. And these guys had that kind of a conviction that our God is able to deliver us. But this is what makes this story so beautiful. This is what sets it apart from many others. And these, this, this one phrase, because now it says, they're even ready for personal loss. And they said, but if not, in other words, even if God doesn't show up, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I just love that. Is that not a statement of faith? Even if he doesn't show up, we're not going to compromise. We're not going to give in. We played before. It was, I don't know if you noticed it, uh, a song uh, just coming in. We're going to play it on the way out too, but it's a current song that you're hearing on the radio by Mercy Me called Even If. But even if he doesn't show up, we will, we will still trust in him because he is trustworthy. Amen. Amen. Yes. He is trustworthy. And uh, they answered the, the king, and, and, you know, they just stood their ground. And that took a lot of courage. It always takes courage. They were ready for personal loss, whatever would come. And friends, you know, when we think about um, martyrdom today, uh, even this week I was doing some research on the numbers. Some suggest that maybe upwards of 100,000 Christians are literally paying for their faith with their lives. Now, some say that's an inflated number because it, it covers a lot of territory that might not be specifically just for their faith, but probably a minimum is like 10,000 in, in parts of the world that are paying for their faith with their lives. And you're thinking, what happened there? Why didn't God show up? Why didn't God deliver them? Um, God has called us to this life, and the life that we look forward to on the other side is even better. And whatever, whatever he takes us through, a person of conviction is going to be willing to, to even suffer loss. I remember uh, reading uh, some years ago about a story. It took place in 1989 in communist Romania, 
Some of you might remember these days of Nikolai Ceausescu. He was just a brutal dictator. Brutal. Some, some images are still stuck in my mind when his demise came. But prior to that, he just made life miserable for the Romanians. The church, there was a state church, but it was a compromised church. A young Hungarian pastor came into Tismora, Romania, to take on this little dwindling church that was there. It was a Christian church and a, and a believing church. And he began to preach the gospel. His name was Laszlo Tokes. And when he came to this little church, it began to spark and ignite a light, and the light began to shine, and people were drawn, and it began to grow into the hundreds and then into the thousands. And it got the attention of the government. And, and there was no room for churches like this in Ceausescu's Romania. And so they sent the secret police to shut it down and to arrest uh, Pastor Tokes and his family. And as they came, they knew that this was coming, it was escalating, and a group of folks, of believers, surrounded the church. There were about 200 of them. And one of the men in that group, his name was Daniel Gavra, and he had candles, and he handed it out to the couple hundred folks, and they lit these candles, and they kind of created this phalanx around this church, and when they came to approach, they, the, the, the officers didn't want a confrontation, and so they turned and they left. And, and something ignited that night. Two nights later, December 17th, they came back and they broke down the door and they beat Pastor Tokes and they, they took off he and his, and his wife. Um, the crowd of demonstrators shifted from the church to the town square and it escalated to the point where the, the officers began firing live, live bullets toward them. And this, uh, this Daniel Gavra was hit and it literally tore off his leg. On Christmas, uh, a, another pastor had gone to visit him and to encourage and to pray for him. And he quoted him as saying, you know, it doesn't matter so much about my leg. After all, I was the one who lit the first candle. And I thought about that, about a person of conviction. What are we willing to pay for our belief and for the truth that we hold? Does it truly shape our lives? Well, these guys stood their ground. Nebuchadnezzar's countenance changes. And all of a sudden, I, I kind of got this feeling that he liked these guys. They were sharp. They were a lot like Joseph is. You remember Joseph in Egypt, and he had favor of God, and he rose to these heights of influence and leadership? That's how, where these guys were at. They were sharp. They, they had learned the Chaldean language, and they were now probably in positions of influence. And he didn't want to do this, but man, when he saw their insistence, something switched, and now suddenly uh, the, the story begins to change. Look at uh, verse 13. Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego be brought. And so they brought these men before the king, and he said to them, is it true that you won't serve? And, and, and verse 15, now if you're ready when you hear this sound, be, that, that'll be great. But if you don't, he says, we're gonna throw you into the furnace. And so that's when they respond. Verse 19, I want you to look at that. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. 
And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into this burning, fiery furnace. And then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace because the king's order was, was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. End of story, right? Not, not so quick, not so quick. This is amazing. As they look down into the, the furnace, and it says in verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, he says, and come here. And, uh, and he says, uh, back, back it up just a little bit. He says, did we not cast three men bound in the fire? And they answered the king, true, O king. And he says, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. I wonder who that was. I wonder who that was. This is what we call a pre-incarnate visit of Jesus Christ. And he was right there with them. And he indeed did deliver them. What a great testimony. It was so much so that in Nebuchadnezzar, when he calls them out, his whole tune now changes. And now you see the impact that it has on him, and he makes this decree. Verse 29, Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego shall be torn from limb to limb, and, and their house is laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. I, uh, I think when we learn from this and we, th we think about a person of conviction, they don't play defense, they acknowledge the ability of God, and they are willing to pay the price, even, even incur loss if that's what it requires, but they're gonna take a stand. And I, wanna, I just wanna kinda conclude today and ask you a question. What would you describe as the convictions that would fall in that category for you? What do you hold so tightly, so completely, that you'd be willing to take a stand at that kind of level? I wanna back up just a minute. Where do, if you do have some of those types of conviction, where do they come from? How do we establish that in our hearts? Mentioned earlier, maybe they were, some things were passed down to you that you've held pretty tightly because you saw them modeled uh, by family or by parents or uh, by, by influential leaders in your life. But I would have to, I'd have to say for those of us that are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, followers of him, Predominantly, you know where it's gonna come from? It's gonna be coming from your understanding and your knowledge and your awareness of the Word of God. As you meditate on the Word and as you hear God's words to you, you'll always come to this point, do you believe it? And Jesus often asked that, didn't he? Do you believe what I'm saying? You hear the Word. The second thing is you have to obey that Word. You have to be committed to follow that Word, not just to know about it, but when the time comes that you're gonna put it into practice 
and, and carry that out. And a third thing I, I would just pass on is the importance of hanging around people, rubbing shoulders with people of conviction. You know, there's a Bible passage that says, uh, bad character corrupts you know, good people. Uh, bad, bad stuff is all around us. And if you tie up, if you hook your, your wagon to some of that, you're gonna find that you're gonna most likely follow that. As they say, birds of a feather flock together, right? And if you're around folks that are just wavering and they're compromising, there's a very good chance that that's gonna spill right over into, into our own uh, behavior. But if you're around folks that you watch and you know that they are willing to pay the price, that they, they stand upon the word and the truth of the word, that spills over as well. That's what our dream is here at North Shore, to get into relational environments. We call them life groups. And have leaders that hopefully exemplify what we're describing today. And the more that we're around them, the more that that is modeled, you're going to find that those convictions are going to be passed down. And that's going to become the kind of people that we are. That's what we hope. And that's what we pray for. I put a couple of questions there in the application. I want to challenge you this week to, to just... Um, um, Write down, maybe take a few minutes and write down four or five of, of what these, these might look like. I was reading recently John MacArthur, and he, he made this phrase. He says, true Christian maturity, if I get this right, he says, true Christian maturity is when your instinctive reflexes are toward, you know, the, the Word of God. When your instinctive reflexes are to, to kind of allow the Word of God to inform what you're going to do, how you're going to do that. And when we say instinctive, I, I thought about, you know, have you ever been cut off on, on the road, you know, like in the highway by somebody? Is your instinctive reflex to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what, what they're doing. Okay? You know what I'm saying? When it is, you'll know you're well on the way to maturity, right? <laughs> that you're, you're putting these things into practice. Let's listen to what the Lord says, and hopefully when we face those incredible odds like, like these three guys did, we're going to approach it like they did as people of conviction. Amen? Amen. I'm going to stand, uh, have you stand, and we're going to pray and dismiss you this morning. Um, but I want to pray for you this morning as we put these things hopefully into practice. You saw that last uh, scripture there that you're so familiar with. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. That's the foundation uh, that we're, we're describing, and we want to be those kinds of people. Lord, today as we commit these things to our hearts and our lives, there's a good chance for the folks that have gathered right here in this room right now that this week they're going to face a test of some kind that will challenge what they really believe. Maybe they've said it with their lips, but Lord, now it's going to come down to do they really believe that? And are they willing to pay the price? Maybe it is an area where they're going to have to trust you and your ability for deliverance like they, they never have before. I pray that when that time comes that the Holy Spirit will strengthen us and that he will give us the wisdom and the discernment to hear your words and then to put those words into practice. Thank you for the example that we've seen. I pray that it will be tucked deeply in our heart and that it will change the way, transform us in how we do things 
uh, you know, throughout the week. So we commit this to you today. Father, if there's somebody here today that doesn't have a personal relationship, they've never uh, trusted you for their salvation and invited your spirit to come into their life, I pray today might be that day they, they would uh, look to you for their salvation. You are the only one who can do this. And if you've been prompting them and bringing them to a place of decision, I pray in Jesus' name today would be that day that they would decide to follow Jesus. We look forward to what you're going to be doing, and we just trust, Lord, everything that is in front of us into your hands. Our eyes are on you, like Jehoshaphat said. Our eyes are on you, and uh, we're going to trust you. So we commit this all to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 Have a great day, and happy Father's Day. Dads, you're going to get something on the way out, and uh, hope you enjoy it, all right?